Okay, we return once again to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and tonight we will read verses 6 through 8. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to see the glory of what we have in Christ Jesus and how it is the fullness of your wisdom in your own glorification and in salvation. As we look back now to the, the law and the rest that you gave to the people of Israel, I pray that, that we would see how much greater things that you have given us in Christ. We love you. And we ask for your blessing upon this time. Amen. All right, now I want to start by mentioning something I probably should have mentioned last week and that was brought to my attention through some conversations that I had with a few of you after last Sunday evening's sermon. And that was some of you said, well, I kind of follow what you're saying overall when we actually get into these texts, but I'm, I'm struggling a little bit because when I look at just the words presented on the page in Hebrews chapter 4, it, it, I kind of ask, is all that really there in just those few short verses? I mean, we went into so much detail last week going back into creation and the covenant of works with Adam and everything, but when I just read these verses, I don't feel like I see all that just lying on the surface. And if that's you, I say, yes, absolutely, you're right, and I'm right there with you. And the reason that that's the case is because, like we said back in week one, this is one of the most difficult texts to interpret in all of the New Testament. It wasn't written like a clear statement of Christ in the Gospels or maybe a clear statement of Paul in one of his epistles where the, the meaning can just be gleaned rather easily from the surface of the text with only minimal reference to outside passages. So many of the author's assumptions and the background he has in mind and even his conclusions go unstated here. And it's really difficult to, to piece together the meaning of the text if you don't actually go back and look at all the stuff that we're going into. So when we go back to the Old Testament, we're trying to go beneath the text, pull out all of the background and assumptions that inform what our author is doing, and then come back to the text and see if we can't make heads or tails of it. So, if you're, if you're struggling to see all that on the surface of the text, you're right. It's not there. We have to go back and then come back to the text once we've done our background work. Now, I want to remind you uh, real quickly of, once again, the three uh, main points or categories that we are dividing this text into, the three ways that we're breaking it down. Three points. First, remember, the author demonstrates, using Psalm 95, that the Old Testament prophesied a coming rest for the people of God. That's point number one, the first thing the author does. Secondly, he then uh, heads off a potential objection that might be raised to his use of the psalm. And that is, uh, somebody might say, well, how do you know that the rest David is calling people to enter isn't just one of the other rests that God gave to man in the Old Testament? Namely, creation and the rest of Canaan. And so he goes back into each of those rests. He takes us back to creation. That's what we looked at last week. And, and then he takes us to Canaan, and he shows us two things in each case. One, that the rest spoken of by David cannot be the rest that uh, we go back and look at, creation or Canaan. It can't be that rest for various reasons. And second, he then establishes a pattern of how God's rest work in each case. And remember, what's the pattern? God works... God rests, God offers rest to man, and then God gives man a day of rest as a pledge of the rest that he may enter into. All of that is contained in the second main portion of the text. And then finally, thirdly, he moves in verses 9 and 10 to showing that that same pattern of God's working and resting has repeated itself in the person and work of Christ, thus giving rise to a gospel rest. 
So you recall that last week we looked at the creation rest, and we saw that the rest spoken of by David could not be that rest. Why? Because the rest that God offered to Adam was eternal life and rest contingent upon Adam's keeping the covenant of works. And so if David were calling men to enter that creation rest, that would imply that the covenant of works that Adam could keep was still available and that you could earn your way into eternal life by keeping that. And since that covenant is broken, the rest offered by it is no longer available to man. And so David can't be speaking of that rest. That's what we saw last week. And we also saw that pattern of God working in creation, God resting, God offering rest to Adam, etc. So then, this week we're going to go back to Canaan for a moment. And we're going to see the full significance of what God was doing there and how the rest that David is speaking of is not the rest of Canaan either. Now, before we actually jump back, we need to establish that the author here in chapter 4 indeed does point us back to Canaan in the verses that we are looking at this evening. So, let's go back and establish that that's the case. Let's take a look real quickly again at verse 6 in chapter 4, verse 6. Once again, it says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Now we stop right there. What has the author just brought to our attention? Those who failed to enter their rest because of disobedience. And who were they? We've already talked about it. It was the wilderness generation. And what was the rest they failed to enter? The rest of Canaan, right? So, the author has just brought up, once again, Canaan. And we're going to pause right here for a moment, and we're going to step out of these verses in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to go back into the Old Testament, kind of like we did last week. We're going to develop all of the significance, well, as much as we can, within the hour, of what was going on in Canaan, and all of the background that the author has in his mind when he pins these words. And then, once we've developed all of that, we'll step back into our verses, verses 6 through 8, and we'll see if we can't figure out what they are teaching us. So, I want to examine the rest of Canaan under the following four headings. Four headings. One, a new work of God. Two, a new rest of God. Three, a new covenant. And four, a new Sabbath. We will look at the rest of Canaan under all four of those headings. So, let's start with the first one. A new work of God. And by the way, when I speak of all these things as being new, a new work of God, a new rest, a new covenant, and a new Sabbath, they are new, not from our perspective, but from the perspective of moving along redemptive history from creation on into the land of Canaan. The rest that God gave, the work that God did in Canaan, was new from the perspective of creation. These are things that we look back on as the old covenant and the old ways. But from the perspective of moving along history, once we arrive to them, they are new things. So don't get confused by the language. Even though I'm referring to a new covenant, it's, it's still the old covenant. It's, it's not the new covenant we have in Christ. Just wanted to clear that up. Now, under the first heading, a new work of God, we want to establish the fact that there was indeed a new work of God, not the creation work, but a new work in the land of Canaan. And when I say a work of God, I am talking not about something that God does. We talk about all the time, you know, that was a work of God. Well, you can pretty much boil everything down to a work of God then. You know, God decrees all things. We're not talking about just anything. When we talk about a work of God, especially when we talk about a work of God in creation, we're talking about significant redemptive historical acts. Unique things, not just anything, qualifies as a work of God in this context. So, did God do a new redemptive historical work in the land of Canaan? I would say He did. Now, let's look at what the Scriptures have to say about this matter. Some of this material was covered by Paul uh, quite a while ago, well over a month and a half at this point. Uh, but since our author points us back to it, I do want to make sure that we understand all of this. So, what was the great work of God in Canaan that gave rise to the rest that Israel could enjoy in Canaan? It was this, the creation of the church state of Israel in the land so that the sons of God could worship and serve Him forever. 
That was the work of God. Now, here's the statement that we want to prove. That this work of God in creating a new people in a land echoes the work of God in creation that gave rise to God's creation rest. And what was the work of God in creation? The six days. The work of God in the creation of Israel echoes the work of God in creation. Now, consider first the preparatory work of God. The preparatory work of God. You see, Israel didn't just pop into existence as a, as a coherent people in the land of Canaan. God didn't just ex nihilo, out of nothing, them into the land as a people. They were in Egypt and they were in bondage. They were not uh, a, a coherent, structured people with all of their various uh, tribes being organized. They weren't uh, possessing the land. They weren't settled. They didn't have the worship already established in Jerusalem. They were a people in bondage. They were not a people rightly constituted. And so God has to do a preparatory work of rescuing them from Egypt. And so then, before the Israelites were the Israelites, there was chaos. There was chaos. Now, what do I mean by that? The people of Israel were living in Egypt with no leadership. They were terrified, no sense of direction from God Almighty. And then when we think about the land of Canaan, it was full of godless pagans filling up their iniquities, worshiping everything under the sun, having free-for-all orgy fests, every person doing what is right in his own eyes. The people of the land were murderers of their children and of one another. They had no fear of God. And so we have a disorganized people and a chaotic land. Sin has that effect. That's the situation we find ourselves in before God works. A formless people and a chaotic land. And then comes God. And He begins His work. And in order to bring this work of His to completion, He has to deliver the Israelites from bondage and drive out the nations before them in Canaan. Consider the words of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 33 and 34. Listen to what God says about His work here. Before me... No God has attempted to go in and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and wars, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in the midst of Egypt. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple of important words there. Notice the language of hands and arms. God says that he has done this work by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. What do we typically associate arms and hands with in, in terms of the appendages of our body? They are the working instruments. What does a blacksmith use? His hands. What does a, a seamstress use? She uses her hands and her arms. We typically think of hands and arms as the instruments of work. So when God says that he saved Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he's using the language of working, indicating that this is a work that he is doing. So God begins this great work of establishing a people through the preparatory work of redemption. He invokes terror and chaos in the land of Egypt to bring the people out of bondage. But even though they had been brought out of Egypt, they were still not a people rightly constituted. They were not a cohesive people group. They lacked form and organization. Now, does any of that ring a bell in your mind from the original creation? How about this? The world was void and without form. You see, and then God began, sorry, God began in the beginning his creation through a preparatory work. You may not have considered this first. Before he actually gets to the six days of creation, what does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, before God actually did what we associate with his work of creation, he formed the matter and the substance of the universe, but it was without form and it was void. And so what are the six days of creation then? They're God coming along and, and taking that formless matter and shaping it and molding it into a cohesive structure. 
And so, when we consider the Israelites, they, the, the substance of them, the form and the matter, if we can use that language, is created when God redeems them out of the land of Egypt. Now he's got the substance of a people, but they don't have any form or cohesion to them. And so what does he do with them? He brings them to the Mount of Sinai, and he begins to organize them. First, he gives them the law of God. That special code that would regulate their conduct and would cause them to operate as a people group. He then gave them a judiciary system, people who would enforce that law. Originally, it, it all centered around Moses, and then later on he was able to get some extra helpers because he couldn't handle it all. But God gave them a judiciary system. And then he, he separates them into their various tribal groups and their clans and their families, and so they now know how to relate to one another. There's social order being created. And because they're a religious people, they need direction in worship. And so he gives them a priesthood and the tabernacle. And he even organizes the priesthood into, into three different divisions, each one of them having their own responsibilities as to what they will do in the worship of God. And like I said, he gives them the tabernacle, a central place of worship being established. And then he gives them laws for sacrifice and worship so that they could serve him. Do you see what God is doing here? He is organizing the people and giving them everything that they need to be a nation. If you want to be a nation, you need law. You need people to enforce the law. You need leaders. If you're a religious people, you need someone to organize the worship, and you need rules for that worship. And you also need social structures that will help you to relate to those around you. God gives them all of that. He's forming them into a people. Now, listen to Ezekiel's description of God's work of organizing Israel, if you want more scriptural support for this. Ezekiel says, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like the plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck and a ring on your nose. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen and cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. I know that's a lot. But notice in this passage, God finds Israel as a rejected and despised woman. She was naked and had no stature in herself whatsoever. And then what does God do? He begins to form her and shape her into the, the, the social being that she needs to be in order to be a beautiful, cohesive member of society. He clothes her and causes her to become respectable, and he fashions her into the likeness that he would have her to be. You see, he begins to organize that which had no form, substance, or structure. And just like God organized the matter in the six days of creation. Now, notice, well, I didn't read all of the verses. I only read through verse 13 of that chapter. Notice what comes next in verse 14. After God has finished his work of creating the nation of Israel, what does he say over her? And your renown went forth from among the nations because of your beauty, and it was good through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. God finishes his work and calls it good. I don't think I even need to spell out how that echoes the original creation. Real quickly, if you want even further proof that God, in uh, the scriptures envision God's creation of the nation of Israel as an echo of creation, just consider the brief words of the prophet Isaiah. 
I am Yahweh your God. I have covered you in the shadow of my hand. There's that word again, that working word. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. There's creation. And saying to Zion, here's Israel, you are my people. You see, God says that he covered the nation of Israel with the shadow of the same hand that he built the foundations of the world with. Just as God made the heavens and the earth, so he has made Israel for himself. So, we have a work of God. God made Israel. He took her in her nakedness. He clothed her. He gave her form and substance and made her a church state set apart for himself. That is the great new work of God, which then becomes the foundation of God's new rest. That brings us to point number two, a new rest of God. We know that when God finished his work at creation, he rested. And we've just seen that the work of creation of Israel was paralleled to the work of the creation of the world. So, what should we expect to see God doing after he forms Israel? Resting. And do we see that? We certainly do. When God had finished organizing his worship in the wilderness, when he brought him to Sinai and he gave him the tabernacle, and Moses had built it, and everything that God wanted was inside of it, just as he said, listen to the words of Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled or rested in it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God had worked in building the nation, and then he rested in the house that Moses built for him. But that rest was not a permanent or stable rest. Why not? Because this is all taking place in the wilderness, in Sinai. They've not yet entered the land that they are to possess. And the tabernacle, the place where God is resting in that passage, was a mobile structure. It was something that was meant to, to move with Israel as they traveled around. And so, once they entered the land, God might build a permanent dwelling place, but in the tabernacle, He has not entered His settled rest in the land. Did God ever come to fully rest in the land of Canaan? Yes, He did. Now, Paul went on to some depth on this again about a month ago, so I'm just going to re-summarize what he's already laid down for us, and that is... The Israelites were supposed to fully conquer the land. We know this. They were to drive out all of its inhabitants so that they would not be polluted by their paganism. And yet, what happened? While God did drive out before them many of the false religious worshipers of the land of Canaan, they did not drive out all of them. They were lazy, and they were content to possess the land that they already got. Once they got just a little bit into the land of Canaan, they said, eh, we'll settle here. Yeah, I know there's a whole tribe of pagans over there, and God told us to wipe them out, but I got a nice pasture land right here. I think I'm going to stay right here. And so they didn't drive all of those people out, and so the land was not fully possessed. And this lasted under the reign of Joshua and then all of the time of the judges. And then we come to David and Solomon. And uh, David drives out a few more of the remaining Canaanites. He drives them out of Jerusalem. And then his son Solomon takes the throne. And the borders of Israel, the possession of the land, reaches its farthest expanse that it would reach in the nation's history. Consider just a few brief words from 1 Kings chapter 4, describing the reign of Solomon. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over the kingdom from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. Notice he's delineating the, the outline, and if you know your map, that's a wide swath of territory. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and six cores of meal, and on and on it goes. And then we skip down to verse 24, and we read, For he had dominion over all the region of the west of the Euphrates, from Tispa to Gaza, all the way to the western regions of the river. And he had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety. Every man ate under the vine of his fig tree all the days of Solomon, and the land had rest. The land had rest. So what do we see there? Eventually, Israel did possess at least a major portion, almost all, of the land that God had told him to, told them to. So then... 
What happens in the next chapter of 1 Kings? Once the land is possessed, God is now ready to come out of that mobile structure, the tabernacle, and he's ready to settle down permanently and rest permanently in the land. And in 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon begins provisions for building the temple. And when the temple was done, the priests moved the ark of the Lord from the tabernacle to the temple, and the glory of the Lord came and settled on the ark in the Holy of Holies, just like it did in the tabernacle in Exodus 40. And the rest of the Old Testament looks back at this moment as the time when God did truly rest, permanently settle for rest in the midst of his people. As the Israelites would go up to the temple in Jerusalem, as they would go up to God's resting place, they would sing psalms of ascension. You might see in your Psalter at the heading of some of the psalms, a psalm of ascent. That means that the, they would, the people of Israel would sing that psalm as they ascended the hill to Jerusalem. And one of those psalms is Psalm 132. And in verse 8, the people of Israel sang the following, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Now, why is that significant? Because as we just said, the temple was the resting place of God in the land. And so, what do we have so far? God works to build the nation of Israel and to give them a land, and then God rests in the land, in the temple, from the work he had done in building this nation. So we see the first two points of our pattern. God works and God rests. Then we come to point number three, a new covenant. A new covenant. Now if you remember, if you're keeping your eye on the ball here, when we're looking for this pattern, what's the third step that we keep outlining? After God works and God rests, what's the next step we keep saying? God offers man entrance into his rest. Now, why have we titled the third point a new covenant instead of a new rest for man or something like that? Because as we saw last week when we were considering creation, whenever God offers the opportunity for man to rest, he does so by way of a covenant. Remember, God held forth rest to Adam. He said, you may enter my rest. Contingent upon what? Adam's obedience to God's covenant. That's a very important point. Whenever God offers rest, he always does so by way of covenant. Man must fulfill a covenant to enter God's rest. And so then, if God is going to offer Israel a chance to rest with him, we should expect to see what? Another covenant that will allow them to enter the rest if they obey it. And that's exactly what we see at Mount Sinai. Consider Exodus chapter 19. The Lord appears to Moses, and he gives him a message for the people. Verse 5 says, this is God speaking, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant that I shall make with you, then you will be my treasured possession. So God did make a covenant with the people of Israel. Now, what were the terms of the covenant? In other words, what did Israel have to do in order to fulfill it, in order to hold up their end of the deal? Well, what did the verse we just read say? If you will obey my voice. Israel was to obey whatever laws God placed upon them as a part of the covenant. And what laws did God place upon them? All of the Mosaic Code with its civil, that is, laws for the organization of a, a magistrate or a ruling judiciary authority, ceremonial law, all of the laws relating to worship and the tabernacle and the priests and washing oneself after defilement, all of that was part of the ceremonial law and all of the moral law as summarized in the Ten Commandments. All three of those aspects of the law combined to one to form the totality of the law which Israel was to keep in this covenant. Now, here's a very important question. What if they had kept the covenant? What if Israel had kept the covenant? What if they had done everything that God demanded of them in that law? What was the rest that they would enter if they were successful? Think back to the garden for a minute. Once again, what was the rest Adam would have obtained if he had obeyed? Eternal rest, eternal life. So then, 
Is that what's being offered to Israel if they keep their covenant? Will they get eternal life? A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that the rest God is offering by Moses is another shot at eternal rest. And that's a grave mistake. It's one that's led to all kinds of bad interpretation of not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament especially. And so let me state emphatically up front that God was not offering to Israel the same rest that he had offered to Adam. He was not offering them rest in heaven by means of the Mosaic Covenant. So then what was he offering them? Physical rest in the physical land of Canaan and the opportunity to be the people of God here on earth. He was offering them the opportunity to live peacefully and securely. If they obeyed, they would, they would enjoy a piece of private property and, and peace and, and rest, and they would have the opportunity to worship God without foreign invaders coming in. They would have secure borders. Their crops would be abundant, their flocks plentiful, children numerous. But what they would not get by obeying the covenant was the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. You say, hey, wait, just, wait a minute, wait a minute. But weren't people saved under the old covenant? Yes, absolutely. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But let me first try to justify that claim real briefly that I have made by the claim that eternal life was not promised to Israel by the Mosaic covenant. Go back for a moment to the text that we read in Exodus chapter 19. Don't actually flip there, but just listen. Let me read a slightly fuller version of what God said there. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, here's what you'll get. You shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice what he promises. Anything in there about justification and everlasting life? Nope. He promises that, he will, that they will be his chosen nation out of all the geopolitical nations of the earth and that he will treasure them. He will establish them, yes, but nothing in there about everlasting life. What other places in the Old Testament speak of the promises of the Mosaic Covenant? How about Psalm 25? To those who keep the word of God and his covenant, that's the Mosaic Covenant, here's what you get. The loving kindness of the Lord will guide your way. What's the reward for keeping the covenant? God's loving kindness will be with you. That is not his eternal electing love. Now, it's true that the elect do get God's loving kindness, but God's general mercies are over all creation. That's the promise. God will be with you here on earth. The psalm also says that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Here's what else you get. His soul will abide in well-being, and his offspring will inherit the land. Once again, what's the promise? Things will go well with you on the earth, you'll have prosperity, and your offspring shall own the land of Canaan. That's what Israel could expect if they obeyed the covenant. And yet very often we hear people, particularly dispensationalists, talking about if Israel had obeyed God's law, Moses' law, then they would have obtained eternal life. And that's not what God promised them. Real briefly, also, consider the words of Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But in this chapter, God outlines the blessings of the covenant. In other words, if they obeyed, here's what they get. And if they disobeyed, the cursings of the covenant would come upon them. Listen to what they get for obedience. See if you hear anything in here about what we get in Christ. God says, if you will faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all of His commandments, then these blessings shall come upon you. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed will you be in the field. Blessed will be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and of your cattle and the increase of your herds and of your young flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bread bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who come against you to be defeated before you. They shall go out against you one way and flee before you in seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in the barns and in all that you undertake. And it goes on and on and on. What did all of those blessings have to do with? Things in this life. How about the cursings for disobedience? If eternal life was really at stake, what would you expect the blessing, or sorry, the cursing of the covenant to be? Eternal damnation. But what is it? 
if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do his commandments, then these curses shall come upon you. Cursed will you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed will be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and of your flock. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. He will send confusion and frustration into all that you undertake and do until you are destroyed and perish quickly from the land. Every one of those curses had to do with temporal punishment here upon this earth. Now, an objection will naturally arise and people will say, okay, hold on a second. You said that Adam would get eternal life if he obeyed his covenant. And what were the laws that Adam had to obey in his covenant? The Ten Commandments that were written upon his heart. Yes? So, in the garden, obedience to the Ten Commandments got you eternal life. And yet, God incorporates those same Ten Commandments into Israel's covenant. Now it's written in stone instead of on the heart, but it's the same commandments. So doesn't that mean that God was offering eternal life to the Israelites? The same commandments that gave you the opportunity to earn it in the garden are given to Israel. So aren't the same promises being attached? The answer is still no. While it is true that the Ten Covenants functioned as a means of obtaining eternal life in the garden, just because God incorporates those same commands into a later covenant doesn't mean that the covenant has to be promising the same things as the one in the garden. This is what John Owen refers to as the republication of the covenant of works in Moses' covenant. Think about that for a minute, republishing something. If something's been published once and you republish it, you are rewriting it. So he's saying that God rewrote the Ten Commandments that were in Adam's covenant into Israel's covenant, but now for a very different purpose. All of the Israelites had already fallen in Adam's covenant. They were already under its curse. And so just because God incorporates those commandments doesn't mean they get to just wipe away their original sin and start at zero. God was not promising eternal life. Have I hammered that home enough? over the past five minutes. All right. We have a new work of God, a new rest of God, a new covenant which offers to Israel a new rest, rest with God in the land. And then we come fourthly to a new Sabbath. Remember our pattern. The last step in our pattern is God gives man a day of rest. And God gave Adam a day of rest as a pledge and a sign pointing to the rest that he could enter if he obeyed God's covenant. And so, now that God has begun a new work in Israel, he's going to give them a new Sabbath to commemorate that work and that rest. Now, wait, a new Sabbath? Israel didn't get a new Sabbath, did they? I mean, the creation Sabbath was on the seventh day. And we know that Israel's Sabbath was on the seventh day. Isn't that the same Sabbath? Well, yes and no, depending on how you look at it. This is a disputed point, so I won't be too dogmatic on either side, but I would at least like to present this for your consideration. The Sabbath is a part and has always been a part of the Ten Commandments. And in the book of Moses, the, ten com the books of Moses, the Ten Commandments are recorded for us two different times, two times. And if you compare the Sabbath command in Exodus 20, the first recording of the Ten Commandments, to how it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the second time, you'll notice something very interesting. In Exodus chapter 20, we read the following concerning the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. Now here's the important part. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, what in this recording of the fourth commandment is the basis upon which Israel is to keep the Sabbath? What's the foundation of it? God once again points back to his work in creation. He said, in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, Therefore, he blessed it. 
So, God does point Israel back to the original creation Sabbath and say, you will obey this Sabbath as, a, as your modeling what I did. I worked, I rested, and now I give to you work to do in the land, and you will rest. So in that case, it seems that Israel is receiving the exact same Sabbath. But then we come to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Notice now the reason given for why Israel must keep the Sabbath. There we read, observe the Sabbath, to keep it holy and the Lord, as the Lord your God commanded you. And then we read the same phrase, six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh is a day of Sabbath rest. On it you will not do any work. On you, your male servant, your female servant. And then we come to verse 15. And last time where we read, for in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, and that was the motivation for keeping the Sabbath. Now we read this, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. There's our language of work again. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Here the reason Israel will keep the Sabbath is, is not the pattern of God at creation, but it's the fact that God redeemed Israel. Now, why is that significant? Because for Israel, the creation Sabbath that was given to man from the beginning, when it is given to Israel, takes on a, a new dimension, and it becomes personalized and contextualized to them as a nation. For Adam, the Sabbath day was simply a pledge that he would join God in eternal rest. It wasn't redemptive. The Sabbath wasn't redemptive for Adam because he stood in no need of redemption before sin. But for Israel, not only does the Sabbath day still signify that, that God is holding forth rest and that they may join him, but now it signifies redemption as well. It takes on a new dimension. And that will become important next week when we look at the Christian Sabbath. So Israel's Sabbath was the same as the creation Sabbath, but different depending on how you look at it. It takes on a new meaning, a new significance, and it had new laws brought in to regulate it for Israel. We're not going to go into a whole lot of detail on those laws, but let me just point out a couple of them real quickly. For example, we read in Numbers that Israel could not pick up sticks on the Sabbath, nor could they make fires in their home. They had to bring very specific items to be sacrificed on the Sabbath. Those things included red thread, fine linen, goat hair, male sheep skins, a cow wood, olive oil for lamps, spices, special oils used for anointing the priest, and onyx stones, other jewelry, all kinds of things. Israel had many other laws that had not been bound upon mankind up to that point that are given specifically to them. And so their Sabbath takes on new features that were not present from the time of creation. And next week, we will see how these new requirements are not inherent to the command itself. And in fact, when it comes to the Sabbath, there are aspects of it that can change without the moral components of the Sabbath being changed. And that's going to become important. So then, we're wrapping up our discussion of Canaan here, and, and what have we seen? The same pattern that was present at creation is present in God's work in Canaan. God does a new work by creating a, and, and fashioning a, a formless, directionless people. He rests from that work in the land, and then He gives Israel a chance to join Him in that rest if they'll keep the covenant. And then finally, He gives them a new day of rest, one that is specified or customized just for them, and it reminds them of how God has redeemed him, them and how they may rest in the land with God. Okay, now that's all of the background that the author has in mind when he mentions Canaan in Hebrews. So, remember I said we were going to pause on those verses from Hebrews. We were going to jump back into the Old Testament and go through a bunch of stuff, and then we were going to come back to Hebrews, and that's what we're going to do now. So, if you have flipped out of it, flip back to Hebrews chapter 4. And we had to go through that because... The author knows that pattern of God work, God, God's work, God's rest, etc., with respect to Canaan, and that pattern informs the argument that he's going to make in our verses. So let's look real quickly at verses 6 through 8 and see if we can't figure out what they are teaching us. 
Let me read once again verse 6 and into verse 7. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, enter what? Rest. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter rest because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Now pause. What does the term day mean here? This is going to be important. If you remember, I know it's been, especially with the birth of Declan and the pause we had to take in all this, if you can remember all the way back to week one, the very first time we discussed this text, we talked about the term day. And we said that it has multiple meanings. Obviously, it can refer to a 24-hour time period. That is the normal usage of it. But it can also refer to a time period of indefinite length or unspecified length, not necessarily 24 hours, but a time period that has certain special characteristics to it. And so we mentioned the, the day of Midian and how that is often used in the scriptures, especially in the prophets, not to refer to a 24-hour period necessarily, but to refer to a time period which is characterized by God's judgment however long that time period may last. That's what a day can refer to. It can refer to both things. And so, the author, sorry, for our purposes, the time period that we are interested in, if you remember from the psalm, is the time period during which God holds forth entrance to his rest to man. Now, the author says that God is again appointing a certain day of rest. Notice the first part of verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day. And so what does that imply? That there had previously been a day appointed. And what was the first day that he's thinking about? Well, in our context, it's Canaan. Now listen here. Both, when he refers to the previous day, the day of Canaan, he has in mind both the day of rest, 24-hour period, Sabbath, that they had in Israel, and the entire time period during which God held forth rest to Israel in the land. The term day implies both of those things. I think we're going to see this a little more in verse 8, so just hold on a second if, if you're not buying that yet. It doesn't just refer to the 24-hour Sabbath day. He's not saying God appoints just a new 24-hour day, but he, in fact, appoints a new day with a double Meaning, a 24-hour period, yes, a Sabbath day, and also a period of God's holding forth rest to man. Now, that's why we had to go back to the Old Testament and establish this pattern to see that it was true. Because the double meaning of the word day corresponds to two of the four points in our pattern, the two that are relevant to man both God's holding forth entrance to his rest to man and the day of rest that God gives. We needed to see that not only was God giving men Sabbath days in history, both at creation and in Canaan, he wasn't just giving Sabbath days to Adam and Israel, he was also giving those days, or he was giving those days, as a part of a larger structure which, whose end goal was to give man a state of rest with God. So that's the first day, Canaan, the Sabbath that they had and the rest that they could enter into. But now God is appointing a new day. Again, he appoints a certain day, which implies that this new day is not the day of Canaan with its rest and its Sabbath. It is a new day that God has appointed. And so it must be characterized by two things, just like Israel's day. And what are those two things? God offering a new rest to man and God giving man a new 24-hour day of rest as a pledge that he might enter into it. Now, David spoke of this new day that the author or the apostle mentions in verse 7. David spoke of it and he called it what? Today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's what David said. What did David mean by today? He wasn't just speaking of the 24-hour time period that he was writing the psalm on. He was also using this play on words, this double play. In other words, David was speaking 
when he said, today if you hear his voice, enter his rest, of the, David was speaking of that entire time during which God holds forth entrance into a new rest, a gospel rest, and to a new 24-hour day of rest that would accompany this gospel rest. Uh, we're going to see, I'm going to prove this a little more in verse 8. The apostle sees all of this in David's words, and all of it only makes sense if you recognize the pattern that we've been looking at of God's rests leading to rests that man may enter and days of rest being given. I know we're running out of time. I'm going to finish up here in just a few minutes. Now, the apostle confirms all of that in verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, that should sound a bit strange on the surface if you think about it. What he should have said, if this was going to make more phonetic sense or grammatical sense, was if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another rest later on. Think about that. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another. The natural flow, the next word, should be rest, so that the two things compare. But he doesn't say that. He says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. Now, why would he say the term day instead of rest? He's comparing now rest with day. Why would he do that? Because he, the author here, is trying to emphasize the double meaning of the word day. He could have just said that God would not have spoken of another rest later on, and that would be true, but he doesn't just want to indicate that God, through David, was speaking of another rest that would be entered into. He does want to indicate that, but he also wants to indicate that God was speaking of another day, 24-hour day, that would accompany this new rest. In other words, another Sabbath day. I know that's pretty tricky to follow. There's a double play on words here, but let me try and just give you a quick summary of verses 6 through 8 in a couple of succinct sentences, and then we'll finish up. God gave Israel a day, a day. When you read that term in this text, think not only a rest to be entered into, but a 24-hour Sabbath. It means both. It, it, it includes both. God gave Israel a day, but many failed to enter that day or that rest because of disobedience. And so God appoints a new day to come, meaning a new rest for man to enter and a new 24-hour Sabbath day to accompany that rest. Remember the play on words. The day slash rest spoken of by David, David referred to it as today. And Joshua, or Canaan, Joshua's being used there for Canaan, Canaan's day, or Canaan's rest, can't be the ultimate rest of God because he was speaking, David was speaking, of a new day to come long after Canaan's day was in full swing. I know that was tricky to follow, and if you would like to re-listen to this and sit down with the Bible, I would highly encourage you to do it, or, and you can talk to me out there afterwards as well if you have questions. So, to finish this up, next week we're going to look at how this day spoken of by David and the Apostle here, this new day that God is appointing, has the same foundation in a work of God and a rest of God that the creation day and the Canaan days had as well. We'll finish this up next week. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word, and I pray that you would give us understanding to know that you have indeed appointed a new day, a new rest for us, and a new Sabbath in which we may rest and look forward to eternity with Christ Jesus. I pray that as we go out this week, we would submit ourselves fully to your word as we press forward in an attempt to love the Lord Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.